Our kids can head back to be with our children's team in Transformation Station. And I'd also like to welcome everyone. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as the lead pastor of Redemption Hill, just one of three pastors. Um, And we're really thankful that you're here this morning. So if you're new to Redemption Hill, let me also just welcome you. We're really thankful that you joined us uh, this Sunday, Easter Sunday. And uh, just as a heads up, if you can stick around for for 10 minutes or so, we're going to have a newcomer's reception right after the service. It'll just be a way for you to connect with some other leadership as well as some other new people and some old uh, in Redemption Hill. So no pressure. I know Easter's a busy Sunday. If you can't stay, don't worry about it. But uh, just as a heads up, you can stay um, after after the service for a few minutes. Um, also, I just wanted to uh, give a, a thanks again. Uh, who was at our Easter egg hunts? Either serving, volunteering, participating. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty big crew. And I just want to want to give it up to uh, everyone who, uh, who participated there. Uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful day. It was a beautiful day. Great turnout. Everyone that uh, was able to participate really enjoyed it and uh, was grateful for uh, us putting that on for our city. So, uh, so thanks. Uh, Thanks for uh, uh, your participation there. And then, and then also, I just want to say, you know, as I was uh, kind of walking in and, and uh, catching people, I just want to say, man, you guys are looking really nice today, all right? So I don't know, like, what happens on the other 51 Sundays out of the year, but I just, all I know is I'm seeing some bow ties out there. I see, uh, we got a couple right here, Felipe, Kevin, looking really suave. Um, and, and I just want to give you some, 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 you know, encouragement, discouragement. You aren't looking as suave as my man Dominic Caruso, okay? Uh, we have a little one-year-old that's now up there, but he's got his bow tie on. And uh, so Kevin and Felipe, just keep working, all right? Maybe next year uh, you'll, you'll win the prize. Uh, but uh, it's, it's great to see you this morning. It's great to be here to worship God, right? This is, this is why we've come. And you may not be surprised to discover that Easter is the most attended Sunday of the year in the Christian church. Now, we understand that if we understand anything about the Holy Week, that this is the the central week where we focus on the crucifixion of Christ on Good Friday, but then also his glorious resurrection today. Uh, So these are the the pivotal moments, and these are the, the realities, the twin realities that we celebrate, not just one Sunday of the year, but every Sunday of the year. And at the same time, it's proper for us on a Sunday like today to consider what, what is, if, if you'll allow me to put it this way, what's the fuss all about? What is the big deal about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection? Well, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul says this is of first importance. This is, if you want to know a little bit about Christ and Christianity, this is what you need to know. Yaroslav Pelikan puts it like this, scholar at Yale. He was a scholar at Yale. He says this, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Think about that. What Pelican means is this. If Christ is raised, then that truth, that reality would be so important, so central 
that in comparison, nothing else in life compares to this. In fact, if that is true, it would be a reality that is worth staking our entire lives upon. Conversely, if Christ is not raised, and this life is as good as it gets, it's the end of the story, then you know what? It really probably doesn't matter that much how we live in this life because at the end of the day, this is all there is. It's over. It's done. So I hope you'll consider the magnitude of the claims of Christ, his death, his resurrection this morning. We're going to finish up our true and greater series in the Old Testament by going back to Genesis 22. Okay, so if you have a copy of God's life-giving word, I want to invite you to open to Genesis 22. It'll be page 16 in those Bibles that we've provided for you. And this chapter of all chapters, I believe, takes us very deep into the meaning of Easter and the events of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. So as you turn there, we're going to consider the, the true and greater resurrection this morning. And as you find your way to Genesis 22, here is my prayer for all of us today, okay? That we would experience God's transforming power through faith in the resurrection of Jesus. That's my prayer for every single person here today, that we would experience God's transforming power through the resurrection of Jesus. Let me read the first eight verses of this story of Abraham and his son Isaac. It goes like this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they both went, both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, this is a gripping story, and I want us just to work our way through to kind of feel the, the, the magnitude of what's happening here in this narrative. The, the story begins with these three words, after these things. So it's important for us, if we're really going to understand what's happening in Genesis 22, we need to understand what's happening in the backstory of Genesis 12 to 21. 
It says after these things. So what things? Well, in Genesis 12, Abraham was called by God to go into a land which he did not know to sojourn there. And it would be that God would make a great nation out of him and his offspring. The covenant promises of God are reestablished and reaffirmed all throughout these chapters, even to the point where God tells Abraham, hey, Abraham, look up at the stars, because if you can count the, the, the number of stars in the sky, so this is what your descendants will look like. You will have an innumerable amount of descendants that will flow from your offspring. So Abraham must have been captivated and, and in awe of God's plan and purposes, not only to give him that number of descendants, but God says, I will bless the world through one of your offspring. So everything is great for Abraham, except there was one very big problem. Abraham's wife, Sarah, remained childless. And so years after year after year passes by, and Sarah still does not have a child. And so they take matters into their own hands. Abraham and Sarah decide to give Hagar, the, the maidservant in the house, to Abraham so that she might bear him a son. Contrary to God's plan, this son named Ishmael is born. But God, even in spite of their lack of faith, reaffirms in Genesis 17 saying, you are still going to have a son, the son of promise, and his name shall be Isaac. At this news, Abraham laughs when he goes and he talks to his wife, Sarah, who is, Abraham's about 100 years old. Sarah is not much younger. And they both laugh at this news. What do you mean, God? Look how old we are. How is it that we can bear a child in such an old age? And yet Genesis 21 after these things, Abraham and Sarah have a son. They name him Isaac, which means son of laughter. There's great joy and celebration. When Isaac was weaned from Sarah, there was a, a great feast that they threw in celebration of the life that God had given to them. This son, this son of the promise through whom the world would be blessed. But then as we come to the end of chapter 21, the narrative in Genesis takes an abrupt turn as we see that God, in verse 2, calls Abraham to take, look at this, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall show you. So the conflict arises in verse 2. It says that God tested Abraham by telling him to take his son. Now, if you're a parent here this morning, you know how much you love your children. My wife, Marcia, is due in a couple of weeks with our, our third daughter. Her name will be Jordan Hope. And let me tell you, she is going to be so sweet, so precious if you get to hold her, you're probably going to do all the little baby talk, and you know, he's so precious, and da 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 right? This is what we do with our children. And, and listen, some of you are going to love her very much, but you're never going to love her like I love her and like Marsha loves her. So contemplate this news. Abraham is told, hey, 
Go, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him to me. But it's not just Abraham's son. It is his only son. Now, how does that square with Genesis uh, 16 when Ishmael is born? What, how, do we, how do we work that out? Because Ishmael was born before Isaac, and so we know that Isaac isn't the only son. Well, just like we see in, in, in John 3, what is, what is Jesus as the one and only son? It means that Jesus is God's unique son. Jesus is, is, is the son of the father. He's unique, and, and, and this is true of Isaac. He was the unique son born to Abraham, the one through whom the promise would come. And so Abraham is told basically by God, think about this. I mean, he's probably hearing these words, and he's hearing God say, hey, Abraham, take your dream. Take your hope of blessing and put him to death. This must have been a drastic moment, the greatest dilemma of Abraham's life. Though God commanded him to do this, surely this did not make much sense to Abraham. And if we're being honest, it probably doesn't make much sense to us. How could God tell Abraham to take the son of the promise and put him to death? After all, God prohibits child sacrifice, right, on the one hand, and on the other hand, how does this command square with his promises to be a blessing to the world through Isaac? It doesn't add up. And yet the narrator tells us that God does this to test Abraham, to see what is in his heart, to know how much he is committed to God, loves God, and will obey him at any cost. And so what I love about Abraham is that Abraham simply lets God be God. How do we understand this command? Well, for, for one, the lawgiver sets in authority over his laws. God can command Whatever he pleases and whatever God commands is right. So Abraham lets God do his job. Abraham does his job. He's obedient to God. And this is all as Genesis 22 says, it's a test. Think about what is tested here. Abraham's loyalty to God is tested. How devoted is he to fulfilling God's will for his life? Abraham's affections are also tested. Who will, will Abraham love more, Isaac or God? And certainly his faith is also tested. Will Abraham continue to believe, hoping against hope, that somehow God will continue to fulfill his promise that he made? So the conflict rises in verses 3 through eight. It says that uh, Abraham goes and he does not delay. He rises early in the morning, takes his son Isaac and some other servants on a three-day journey. By the way, think about this. If you had just heard this news, would you rise early in the morning? Probably not. What about thinking about this for three days? I mean, Abraham has plenty of time to retreat, to turn back, to say, you know what? I must have heard something wrong. God surely didn't tell me to do this. 
I mean, if, if we hear this word, aren't we going to kind of consult some friends? Hey, have you ever heard of anything like this? Maybe I should, you know, really pray about this for a little while, you know? But, but Abraham does none of these things, it seems. He just goes. He is resolved to obey God. To the point there, when we see in verses 9 and 10, it says this. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Can you imagine the myriad of emotions that Abraham must have felt in these moments? God, you have told me to do this, and yet I don't know how you are going to provide in these moments, but I am going to obey to the very end. And as the knife is in his hand, we find the words of verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, once again, here am I. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What an amazing story we have in scripture. And this story points us to the work of Christ in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. So as we think about this gripping story, I want to give you two truths that provide two pictures of life. And I want to give you, as you think about these two pictures of life, I want to give you two encouragements to live out this morning, okay? Number one, we should know the God who provides life in the shadow of death. You got that? Know the God who provides life in the shadow of death. The overtones of death just run all throughout this story. Abraham, go. Offer up your son Isaac on the altar. Cut the wood for the burnt offering. Death is coming. He takes the wood, the fire, and the knife. Death is coming. Isaac even asked his father, Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We know that death is coming. And it's in the the shadow of death that we reflect and we realize that death is coming to everyone. Death is coming to all of us, but not in this way, right? Not not in, in, in the way of a father having to sacrifice a son. And so we're tempted to focus on Abraham here, and we will, rightfully so. Abraham displays magnificent faith in this story, but I have some really important news to share with you this morning. Abraham is not the main character in the story. God is the main character. God is the hero, not only of this story, but every story of the Bible. 
This desperate situation was an opportunity for God to display his glory. I love what A.W. Pink says. He says that man's extremity provides God's opportunity. You feel that? You've been there? Our extremities, that when we're pushed to the end of our rope, that's an opportunity for God to come through. And as we've seen, God certainly comes through. And how does he do it? Well, paradoxically, where there should be death, God provides life. Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and in the shadow of death, God provides a ram to be the substitute for Isaac that Isaac might live. Now, for any of us familiar with Christianity this morning, we know that this scene points us to a better scene that we find in Christ. This scene is pointing us to the cross, that God would take his son, his only son whom he loves, and he would let him live a perfect life, that he might be this perfect sacrifice for our sin and let him hang on the cross that he might bear. What happens on the cross? Jesus bears the wrath of God in our place. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like real things here. Wrath, judgment, condemnation. We deserved all of these things, and Jesus is our substitute. Now, I know that makes some of you feel uncomfortable, but let me just work from the, from the comfortable to the even more comfortable, okay? So, so many of you know it's baseball season around here. Anyone kind of been keeping up opening day a couple weeks ago, our beloved Red Sox climbing back up to 500, right? We're, hey, hey, we won the World Series last year, right? Get a, you know, we'll be fine. All right? So, so the, the Sox are going to be playing the O's, Baltimore, you know, next two days. And then, and then who comes to town? Anybody know? The Yankees. That's right. Now, can you imagine, just, just, just hypothetically speaking, that uh, John Henry, the principal owner of the team, and Larry Lucchino and, and, and Tom Warner and, uh, you know, John Farrell, our manager, Big Poppy. You know, anybody going to see a couple replays tomorrow? This is our city. Anybody remember that? Absolutely. This is our city. Can you imagine if, if these men were to roll into Fenway Park wearing the opposition's colors? Yankees hat, pinstripes down, their shirt and pants. I mean, is that going to happen? Absolutely not. But what if it did? What if it did and they meant it? Preposterous, scandalous. It's wrong. It's wrong, right? If we love our city, we love our Red Sox. That would be wrong. In a much greater way, we have come into God's world and we are wearing the wrong colors. We have not loved God. We have not obeyed his commands. We have done what is evil in his sight. 
He who is too pure to look on evil. We have rebelled against him. And we then expect just, okay, let's not talk about wrath. Let's not talk about judgment. Let's talk about God being angry. You know, you could just kind of like, I mean, if, if we're going to be upset about these little earthly things, do we think that God might be a little upset when his people whom he created for his glory just turn and rebel against him? It, it was a major deal. So major that he would send his son his only son, to pay the penalty for our rebellion on the cross. This is good news. Just as Abraham sees a provision so that he does not have to lose his son so that his life might be preserved. So in a much greater way, when the shadow of death casts its ugly shadow on us, God sends his son to provide what we could never provide for ourselves. Jesus on the cross takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Jesus on the cross takes on our curse and gives us his blessing. He takes our separation from God and he unites us to God. Jesus takes on our death and he gives us his life. And this is so radical that it's not just that God provides for us in the shadow of death, but he actually defeats death itself in the death of Christ. If that doesn't get you lifted this morning, like if this isn't going to make you happy, all right, then just like kind of check your spiritual pulse and make sure that you're in this thing. And I'm not trying to, you know, pick on anybody. I'm just trying to be real here this morning. This is good news. Athanasius, the the fourth century theologian, he says this, all right, the, the paradox of Christianity. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. (laughs) This is what happens in the cross of Christ. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you received the substitutionary work of Jesus? Have you looked to him in faith? Have you seen the provision of life that God has provided for you, that while you were dead in your sins and rebelling against God and separated from God because of those sins, headed for an eternity of hell, God sends his son to take your place so that you might be 100% been brought back into a relationship with him and been raised to life. If you have not taken that step, there's like no better time than right now. Say, I'm done with that old way of life, and I'm saying yes to Christ. I'm in with him. There's no greater decision than anyone could ever make than saying yes to Christ. So in this story, we see that we should know that God provides life in the shadow of death, but that's not all. Number two, we need to believe in God's power to provide life beyond the shadow of death. Did you catch that? Believe in God's power to provide life beyond the shadow of death. Now, let's just be honest. Okay, here, I'm, it's part of my job. I'm supposed to be honest with you, right? And so I'm, I'm reading this story, and I'm still, even though I read that God does this to test Abraham and that he has his purposes, and this is even foreshadowing the work of Christ. I mean, we get to the end of the story, and if we're being honest, we're still scratching our heads, right? 
Like Abraham, man, if I am in your shoes, I don't know if I'm going to follow through with that. And yet he follows through. How could he do this? Well, the writer of Hebrews helps us out. In chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, you can read them along with, with me. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named He considered, don't miss this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you see what's going on here? Abraham had amazing faith in the power of God. So much faith And he believed that God was so powerful that even if he were to sacrifice his son on the altar, that God not only could, but would immediately raise Isaac from the dead. This is what's going on in Genesis 22. This is the kind of faith that Abraham has in God. The God of Abraham, when we read that refrain all throughout the Old Testament that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we need to be reading that and remember that we have a strong God. We have a powerful God. We have a God that can do anything that he pleases. And as we think about Abraham's faith, that even if it means raising Isaac from the dead, God could do anything but break his promise. It reminds us and and it points us to an even greater resurrection. You see, Abraham was about to sacrifice his son on the altar, believing that God could raise him from the dead. But Jesus is our true and greater sacrifice And he is our true and greater resurrection. He was offered on the altar of sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross. And he did rise from the dead three days later. So what does this mean then in the story of the Bible? And how does this relate to us? Well, let me put it in the words of N.T. Wright, who says this. I mean, this this is heavyweight stuff, all right? He says the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. Okay, let me stop right there and just think about that. So so when Jesus comes, what are the first words out of his mouth when he starts preaching? He says, repent. All right, so this may not be a popular word today. That just means change of mind that leads to a change of life to where you've stopped living for yourself and you start living for God. So you may not like hearing the words repent, but that was the first word out of Jesus' mouth, okay? But then he says, repent, why? For the what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does that mean? It means that God's rule and reign are imminent. That God, the way that God made the world in the beginning, we've been looking at this in the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden, this perfect place of harmony, shalom, rest, peace, life. God is working to usher this back in, and he inaugurates it. He begins it in the life and ministry of his son. I mean, I'm getting chills just talking about this, okay? So so when Jesus goes around and he starts healing the blind to where they can see, and he starts causing the lame to walk, 
This is a foretaste. It is a picture of the coming kingdom of God. Jesus came to bring life, to bring wholeness, to restore the brokenness in our world. And so the resurrection completes the inauguration. He inaugurated in his ministry, but the the resurrection completes it. It confirms that God's kingdom has already come upon us, though not yet fully revealed. It will be fully revealed when he returns. That's the end of the story. And so now let me get back to the quote. He says, the message of Easter then is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. And here's the beautiful news. Okay, we talked about some bad news a minute ago, but let me talk about some good news for a moment. God invites every single person who's here today to participate in his kingdom. And this is not like a little ticket, okay? that you can just become a guest and just kind of hang out for a little while, he invites all of us to fully participate and become a part of his kingdom. So the dawn of God's kingdom has fully appeared. We are invited to participate in it. And so in light of that, then, in light of this coming kingdom that has, has dawned in the coming of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, I want to give you three truths uh, that are full of significance for us about the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Number one, the resurrection of Jesus offers hope, okay? The the resurrection of Jesus offers hope. Just as Abraham believed God for something more, something greater than most could even conceive, so the resurrection of Jesus points us to something more and proves there's something more. Now, now I don't know about you, but, but when I look at the world that we live in, In all of the brokenness, all of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the suffering, I, for one, hope that there is something more, something better that lies ahead. You know, I was watching uh, ESPN this week. It's kind of what I do at at night, sometimes catching a game or just, you know, relaxing a bit. And and there was a documentary uh, called Dream On. It's about uh, some of the stories of, of, of those victims in the marathon bombing just this last year. And there, there were at least five stories that were woven through, but the, but the central story that's narrated by Ben Affleck was about Mark Ficarelli. Mark is a resident of Stoneham. He actually is friends of some of those in our congregation. And so we, we know as we reflect on the events of the marathon bombing last year and even maybe have a little tense uh, tension over what's happening this year, uh, we, we know that this world is broken. That, that the best has not yet come. And yet, here's the good news of the resurrection and the coming kingdom of God, that there will be no prosthetic legs in the kingdom of God. There'll be no hurting, no tears, no sorrow, no suffering. This is the hope that we have because Jesus is raised and we who know him will also not only be with him for eternity, but we will have resurrected bodies which will be perfect for all eternity. And so you may, you may be here this morning, and it is cool if you are. I hope you don't leave here in the same place, but you may be here and you may be doubting all of this truth that I'm sharing with you about Jesus and Christianity, but I have to think in your heart of hearts, even if you do not yet believe it, you have to wish it were true, right? Don't we long for a world like this where joy and life and peace is coming 
And God has the last laugh. Life reigns through death, which leads us then to our second thought. The resurrection of Jesus offers life. Abraham not only experienced God's provision of life in the shadow of death through God providing the ram, but he was fully convinced of God's power to provide life beyond the shadow of death. You get that? So so in other words, let me put this in a little more simple terms. Ram or no ram, Isaac is living. Ram or no ram. So so God's going to either provide beforehand or afterhand, but, but God will provide because this God is the God of the living. He's the God of life. So Jesus in John 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says what? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he puts this question to Martha, which he puts to us this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for us? Do you believe that Jesus rose again for us and for the glory of God? Because here's the beautiful part. If you believe this, then you can truly have no fear of death. That's amazing. Not afraid to die. And if you're not afraid to die, then what else, what else should you fear? What, what, of, of what else should we be afraid if we do not even fear death itself? And so the resurrection challenges us to consider, are we ready to die? Is there any fear of death in our hearts? I was catching up with the news this week, and I saw this story about Michael Bloomberg. Okay? He was the, the former mayor of New York City. He's a mega billionaire worth about $31.4 billion. He happens to be a native of Medford, by the way. Who knew that? Yep, he's from, he's from our city. And so he's, he's getting a little up in years. He's about 72 years old. And so he's, he's beginning to probably wrestle with his own mortality now. And listen to what he said in an interview. With a grin pointing to his philanthropic works, he says this, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even Wow. Now, now I, don't, I don't know how sincere he was. I don't want to pick on Mr. Bloomberg this morning too much, okay? But I mean, I don't, I don't know any Christians that would even like have this thought to talk like this. And so, so think about it. Mr. Bloomberg does not fear death, but his reasons are not grounded in that which will sustain him. Because we know that Jesus would not have died if we could be good enough. Jesus died on the cross because we can never be good enough. And so it's not on the basis of our own works that we stand confident in the face of death, but it's on the works of another, namely Jesus Christ, to whom we look, the resurrection and the life, that we are guaranteed to live eternally with God. And so hear the words of Christ in John 14, 19. He says, because I live, you also will live. This is the promise of the resurrection for all of those who follow Jesus. 
The resurrection of Jesus offers hope. The resurrection of Jesus offers life. And finally, the resurrection of Jesus offers power. You say, what do you mean, Tanner? What kind of power? Power for our everyday lives. If you come this morning and you hear a lot of talk about eternity and life with God eternal, I'm glad you heard that, but if that's all you hear, you haven't heard the full story of the gospel because when Jesus came, he came because every day of life matters to God. You see, the, the Christian is, is guaranteed not only a death-proof life beyond the grave, but are you ready for this? We are guaranteed a death-proof day tomorrow. Now, now, how do you say that? It's because the life of God in the soul of a follower of Christ is absolutely indestructible. When, when we look to Christ and God gives us a new life on the inside, this, this moment when we believe we have moved over from death to life. And this life that we now have in Christ, it never stops. It keeps going and going and going. And so here's the deal. The resurrection of Jesus is not an event that we celebrate on one day of the week, but it is a reality that transforms us every single day of our lives. Do you know this power? Paul says the power that raised Jesus, go read Ephesians 1, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in those who believe. And so I know, okay, we talked about it, man. We all coming in on Easter. We got our best clothes on. We're looking all nice and stuff. We're looking good on the outside. But I know that we are broken people on the inside, that we need God's grace every single day, that there's not a day that goes by that we couldn't say, if we're being honest, you know what? I could experience a little more life of God, the life of God within my soul. And so what is it for you? Here are just a few examples. Maybe you need the life of God, the power of the resurrection of Christ to enable you to forgive those who offend you. Maybe you need the power of the resurrection to enable you to persevere in the workplace or to have patience that that job will finally come through again. Maybe you need strength for your studies. Maybe you need the power of God at work in you to heal fractured relationships. Perhaps it's to say no to sinful desires so that you might live your life for God as he intends for us. The resurrection of Christ holds significance for all of those things. So the resurrection of Jesus offers hope, it offers life, and it offers power for us if we would look to Christ and experience his work in our souls. So I want to leave you with a quote from J.I. Packer who talks about the connection between Christian hope and the resurrection of Christ. He says this, and I'll close with this. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. 
But Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say, the best is yet to come. Friends, the best is yet to come. Nothing we face in this life has the final word because Jesus died and rose again that we might taste and experience the life of God in us today and forever. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your life-giving word. And we pray that your spirit would do only what your spirit can do. Lord, my words are, are, are only so good. In fact, they're no good apart from your grace and your spirit at work to convince us of these things, to, 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 to show us that they are true. To, to really believe not just that Jesus rose from the dead with our minds, that that's intellectually credible and, and true, but Lord, that, that in our own experience that the, the life of Christ matters for every single second of our lives. God, I pray that Redemption Hill Church would be a church that is so consumed with the gospel and living for your glory, that when people think about us, they would think, man, that's a church that's full of life. That's a church that really gets it, man. They, they live out what they say they believe. And God, we know this will only happen through a belief, a deep and abiding belief and resting on the work of Christ on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray, amen.